The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. My annual joke, it's only 10.06, so now I have two hours to preach. (laughs) Just kidding. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for the fact that you are God, that you are almighty, that you are high and lifted up and exalted, glorious in splendor, and that you are near, that you live with us and walk with us, that you've made us as people and you deal with us as people and and you, you even give us things like humor. You give us real life and walk with us in that real life. You are a marvelous God, a marvelous God. So would you this morning, God, draw near to us and walk with us in the midst of our very human issue we're going to look at this morning, this very human issue, really kind of something at the core of what it means to be human this side of the fall. Walk with us in our humanity here and set us free. Pull us out of this. Would you help us to identify it, to see it, and would you then set us free? And draw, in that setting free, draw our eyes up, draw our eyes away from ourselves and set them on glory, on on you. You are high and lifted up and you are near and intimate and I pray that you would now be with us and you would heal. Perhaps for some here, you want to draw them for the first time. Would you do that work? Would you, would you make the sinfulness of sin clear and the glory of grace clear? Open eyes and save. But for most of us here this morning, Lord, I pray for your sanctifying work, a liberating work. Do good to us in that way, please. Help my words to be clear. Help us to to listen attentively. If there is barrier, Lord, physical barrier, would you clear that away? If there is spiritual barrier, would you even now lead us in in repentance, in a a setting aside of, of that which may be a barrier? Whatever, however that may be, would you lead us to turn from it and turn to you with with open hearts? Speak, Lord, we pray. Teach us and give us ears to hear. We pray this in Christ's name and for the, the upbuilding of his people. Amen. We turn our attention to the middle of Luke chapter 8, where we will again consider verses 16 to 18. We looked at these verses last week, including up through verse 21, noticing that they are the conclusion to the theme of hearing, this theme of hearing that Luke brought to our attention in giving us the parable of the sower that Jesus taught. Jesus was preaching to large crowds we saw over and over and over again, town after town, and one day as a crowd was gathering to him, he, he told this familiar parable, a farmer like Jesus, for instance, throws out seed indiscriminately and it falls on all kinds of soil. And on some soil, it doesn't take at all. And the other types of soil, it it seems to take for a while. Something seems to happen. A plant begins to grow. But in time, it's choked out. It dies out and proves worthless, fruitless. And yet, there is another type of soil that is good soil and shows itself to be good soil as the seed is grabbed hold of and and grows up and produces a fruitful plant. The seed being the word of God that Jesus is preaching, and the point is, be careful how you hear. You want to respond like that fourth soil, like good soil that hears what Jesus is saying, that hears the message Jesus is preaching, takes it in, grabs a hold of it, and what results then is a fruitful life. 
Be careful how you hear. And that word hear was repeated throughout the, the section, especially as Jesus explains the parable. And then twice more in verses 16 to 21, as we saw last week. In last week's passage, Jesus kind of mixes the metaphors. He switches from the idea of hearing to the idea of seeing. And it's not seed that's thrown out, but it's light that's thrown out. As a lamp is lit, set on a, a lampstand in the middle of the room so that the light falls on everyone. And it's light that's seen and that it exposes, so he's, he's working with that kind of analogy. But yet, when he comes to apply it, he comes back to hearing. Take care, then, how you hear, verse 18. Verse 21, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. He comes back to hearing because really he's talking about a preached, spoken message that has to be taken in and heard. Application. Hear. Take care how you hear. Take care how you respond. Be sure you respond properly to it. That was the main point. So that's the point that we pressed home last week as we looked at these verses 16 to 21. Now, I'm coming back to these verses, particularly 16 to 18 again this week, and I'm not preaching the main point. I already did that. We're coming back, though, because there's something profitable for us here still if we look at these verses in a little different way. We look at really a minor point, a subpoint, an assumed subpoint, and a supportive subpoint. I mean, it, it, it is underneath of what we were talking about last week. It's very much here. It's just not the main point. So kind of what I'm doing is I'm grabbing a, a portion of what we talked about last week and then a portion of that. So I'm looking at something small and I'm going to be expanding it. So it's, it's a minor point, not the main point. But the reason we're going to look at it is that it touches on a large and common problem that people then and people today, including us, that we all face that we all struggle with as part of our humanity, our fallen humanity, this side of Genesis chapter 3. A mistaken way of living, a mistaken way of approaching God that God would graciously want to expose and set us free from. So that's why we're looking at this this morning, because there's some mistaken way of living here that God would want to expose and set us free from so those are essentially the words of my main point here's what i'm working towards this morning in a sentence god's gospel exposes and sets free once and again and again god's gospel exposes and sets free once and again and again so what I'm working towards this morning is we look at a minor point from verses 16 to 18. Let me read that section of this passage. Jesus said, No one, after lighting a lamp, covers it with a jar or puts it under a bed, but puts it on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. Take care, then, how you hear. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he thinks that he has will be taken away. Verses 16 to 18. Here's the first observation. It is a common mistake to think we become acceptable to God by doing good. It is a common mistake to think that we become acceptable to God by doing good. That's the mistake that we're going to be focusing on. The mistaken way of living and approaching God to think we become acceptable to Him by doing good. That's the mistake that God wants to set us free from, all of us. We see it, this mistake, when we look at the second of the two responses in verse 18. That's the little part of the passage that I'm going to be kind of expanding here. So the end of the verse, he says, And from the one who has not, even what he thinks that he has will be taken away. Notice the phrase, what he thinks that he has. He 
or she is under the impression that he has acquired something, that he has attained it, and he holds on to it, but he's mistaken. It's a, it's a mistaken view of what actually is. It's a thinking. It's, it's an error in thinking and in understanding. So what does he think that he has attained and possesses, mistakenly so? Well, we talked about this last week, and if you were here, you, this will be familiar to you, but if you weren't, what he thinks he has comes out by way of contrast with the first part of the verse, as well as with verse 21. So that verse, if you look at it again, it says, take care then how you hear, and then he has two paths. There's a fork in the road right there. Two paths. And the second one I was just talking about, what he thinks he has but doesn't, the first one says he has and receives more. Has what? Well, you'll recall last week we connected this to verse 21 where Jesus says, my mother and my brother are those who hear the word of God and do it. So the, the hearing is the connection of both these verses. Take care how you hear. How you hear properly, Jesus says, that makes you like my mother, like my brothers. makes you my family. What the one who hears what Jesus is saying, what the one who hears Jesus' word has is intimate relationship with God in Jesus. Connection to him. This one who hears has been made acceptable to God, has been brought near to God, has been joined to God, and is intimate with Jesus like a brother, like, like a mother, family, tight, joined, union, fellowship. That's what he has on this path. And that's what the one doesn't have on the second path. Thinks he does, but he doesn't. He's mistaken. This is a tragically common mistake. We people, we think on a path other than by listening to what Jesus preaches, on some other path we think that we can become acceptable to God and are embraced by God and are brought into union with God and experience fellowship with God by some means other than what Jesus preaches, other than his message, his good news. That's all we get from verse 18. That there are two paths. One hears properly and has intimacy with God and receives that even more, that fellowship, the maturing, grows. And one, the other path, does not have that relationship, does not have that intimacy with God. That's all we get from verse 18. So we begin to think into it. What exactly is this other path? Because I can say, this path, what it is positively, it is hearing what Jesus preaches. And this path, all I can say is that negatively, it's not hearing what Jesus preaches. It's not listening to it, not taking it in, not embracing it. What can we say positively? What is it? If you think about it for a second, it's not hard. If you were to ask the crowd listening to Jesus, what is the way that a person becomes acceptable to God. They would have told you what people today tell you. They would have told you what everybody today tells you. How does a person become acceptable to God? They would have said something, and they would have used language about God's law, by obedience to what God teaches, by doing good, by being good, by living right and worthy lives, by good works. This is what pleases God. This is what God requires of us. This is what, when we do it, if we do it, what makes us acceptable to him. My doing good, my being good, my works is what makes me right before God. If you want to write a term down, works righteousness. Theological term. But in common language, their thinking and our thinking runs, 
how I do determines how God views me and whether or not he accepts me. How I do determines how God views me and whether or not he accepts me. That mindset is very common. Very common. It's, it's in the idea, I mean, you can see it, it's commonly read into the Bible, and people believe, as they did in that day, mistakenly so, that they, they believe that God has given us the Ten Commandments, God has given us the writings of Moses and elaboration on the Ten Commandments, and he's laid out there right in front of us, outlining what constitutes evil and what constitutes good and righteousness, and then he calls us, commands us again and again, again, the Bible's full of commands, commands us again and again and again, do this. This is what's right. That's there. That's true. He's laid it out in front of us. And when we do it, he accepts us into his kingdom and makes us citizens, makes us his people. That is so common, and it is mistaken. It's a misunderstanding of why God actually gave the law. It's actually got it totally backwards. God did indeed give us Ten Commandments and an elaboration on those Ten Commandments. And he did lay out what is righteousness and what he requires. But he did so to show us what's required and to prove to us, in fact, that none of us do it. And none of us can do it. None of us do it, and none of us can do it. And that's why he gave it, to show what is required and to show that we can't and don't. If we were to keep it, we would have to keep all of it, 100% of it. That's how we would be righteous by works, and no one does it. There is no such thing possible as works righteousness. But the world continues to think this way. Is this not how people evaluate Christianity? A list of do's and don'ts, a collection of rules to follow. This is how every religion in the world works, in fact. Every religion in the world, perhaps reading the Bible and perhaps calling itself Christian, but even if setting that completely aside, there is some other set of standards, some other ethics, some, some other collection of rituals and, and performances that are set up and, and then held out in front of us as we, these are things that we are to follow and if we do well in them, then God will accept us and we will be brought near and deemed worthy. This is so common and it is an error and we have to consider it. You, should consider it. Have you misunderstood how we become acceptable to God? We should consider it in regards to maybe you or maybe other people that we know kind of outside of the church who would say, I am not a Christian, so I put before you this, have you evaluated the law of God and considered that perfect obedience to it is required? Have you misunderstood that? It is not possible to be righteous in yourself and become acceptable to God. Perhaps you're in the church and you've misunderstood the gospel and have thought that this is what's laid out in front of us and as I do that, God accepts me. We need to consider this. But Christian, we all need to consider this. Because I, I think, and I don't know, but I think that if I were to somehow climb into the heads of most of us here, probably many of us up to this point have assumed I'm talking about somebody else. The people that I just mentioned people out there who know they're not Christians and don't, don't pretend to be Christians, or the people in here who think they're Christians but aren't. Those are the people that I'm talking to. And I am talking to them a little bit, but not mostly. I'm mostly talking to us. Us who are, in fact, Christians. Think of what the point is exactly. It is a common mistake to think we become acceptable to God by doing good. 
That's true for every single one of us. Every single Christian. That's human. It's a mistake, but it's common to man and woman. We think commonly, and I don't mean to say every single moment of every single day, but we think commonly, day by day, how I'm doing determines how God views me. That my right standing, my righteousness, not in an eternal sense. You're a Christian. If you're a Christian, I reckon that if you're a Christian and you're here, you are clear on, you expect to be, you know that you will be saved on the day of judgment, that he will not abandon you, that he will keep you and hold you. So you're not doubting or wondering, am I righteous in that sense? Do I stand before him accepted in that sense? Then, on that day, I'm talking about today, day after day. Many of us, we in the day by day, think that our right standing, that our acceptability to God is tied to my works, to my performance, to how I'm doing. It's a natural way of living. It is the human way of living. And as soon as we are drawn out from it, we, we, we are set free from that and we see it and we, we say no to it. And as soon as you stop consciously thinking about it, you begin to lean back towards. It's human. This side of the fall. It's a mistake that we Christians frequently commit. And it's what God would want to set you free from. So what are the symptoms of such a mistake, of such mistaken belief? Look for them in the following places. and Let let down your personal guard and look for them in in the following places. And perhaps, ironically, you just discovered the first place. Because it's possible, again for some of us, that as soon as you realize that I'm talking to Christians and you might put this word, accusing us of a mistake, accusing you of being wrong about something, the defensive wall went up and you became a little bit irritated. You might have just discovered the first symptom. Because that might be, I mean, it could be that my tone's wrong or that I'm rubbing you the wrong way or something, but, but it might be that, that that defensiveness, that that wall right there just revealed something about you that you don't want to consider any way that you might be wrong because it might be revealing that fundamentally you think you're only okay as long as you're not wrong. And you don't want to be told you're wrong because that'll mean you're, un, you're un-okay. So no, don't talk to me about mistakes I make. Is that what you just discovered? Did you just discover that? Well, let me try to bring you back in and say, there's nothing here. There's nothing here that is about your condemnation. But your liberation. This is my goal here this morning, and God's goal for you here this morning in this is to set you free from something. Not to wrap you up and and ensnare you and and convict you of something. We're trying to set you free. So, symptoms. Often it lies behind this mistaken way of thinking that how how I do determines how God views me, often that's what's lying behind all of our burden and our working. Especially in the realm of the spiritual and the moral. How about spiritual disciplines? Bible reading and prayer. Did the sermon on fasting a few months ago cause a problem for you? There is something else I have to do. When you begin to think about 
how often you're supposed to pray and, and what real prayer looks like. Do you feel like, or that I'm, I'm being called to love my enemy. And it begins to feel like brick, 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 brick weighing you down because how you're seeing that is, this is what's revealing, the symptom perhaps, what I'm thinking is I've got to get above this to be okay and you keep building the wall higher. And I have to get, I have to get, I must get above that to be viewed well, by God. So the burden grows, and maybe that's a symptom. You notice that in your own life. You find yourself anxious to do right and guilt-ridden when you don't. It's conviction weigh heavy on you. You see yourself as a failure. And then you think, of course, God sees me as a gigantic failure because he sees all of me and I am a gigantic failure and a sinner and I keep doing the same things over and over again and he's probably angry with me and he's certainly fed up with me. I can't get my act together. You feel that. If the guilt-ridden, the anxiety, the pressure, maybe those are symptoms that you're thinking about this mistakenly. Maybe with the frustration and the guilt-riddenness leads to a hopelessness and a despair, and you start burying that hopelessness under something self-destructive. Some substance that you take too much of. Or some, some legitimate pleasure that you just give yourself to so that you can just feel good for a little while and, and deny the pain, but you're really just dodging. And really, that's just a symptom, in fact, that what's going on over here is wrong. You're thinking about it wrongly. Or maybe you, you deny, you deny listening to people because you don't want to struggle with it. And, and denial and deception, you, you put on the, the, the common smile, I'm fine, yeah, I'm, I'm fine, everything's great. Phony, but fine. Because you're thinking, I'm only okay if I'm doing well. I'm doing good. It's the mistaken thinking, the mistaken theology that lies behind shame. And we should be ashamed of sin. Sin is shameful, but we are not shameful. You're a child of the king. You're not a shameful mess, but you feel like it. You feel like it because you know I am a wreck. He was describing that prostitute who was a mess. That's me. I mean, I smile, but that's me. And maybe the feeling of shame in you is a symptom that you're thinking about this wrongly. That you think, really, how I'm doing determines how God views me. Or maybe how my kids are doing. Because a whole bunch of us think how I'm doing is determined by how my kids are doing because I was responsible to raise them. And as people look at my kids and say, they're a wreck, they look at me and say, what did you do to them? You failure. And so I feel shame at my kids because they say that I'm a failure and I can only be okay if I'm not a failure. If, I, if, I'm, if I'm good, if I've got it together. So if I can say, look, they have it together, that means I have it together, that means I'm okay. Maybe the guilt you feel about your kids is a symptom pointing to something. All of those symptoms, and I'm sure there are others, show up in our moments of perceived failure. When, we, when we, we, we feel like I'm not. They're what I might call the, the lowly symptoms. And they're, they're real for us. We also need to flip things over and consider what we could call the haughty symptoms. Because while we can and, and we do live in the feeling of, of failure and of self-condemnation and of burden and despair and hopelessness, 
Sometimes we have to cover that up on the outside, but we, we can live there. We also, we in the church, we also can live like Simon the Pharisee. Not feeling like a failure, but feeling like a success. Because there's God's law, and I try hard to do it, and, and you know, I'm, I'm doing it. Especially compared to her. The other side of this, the, the high rather than the low, the, the symptoms on the high side. Indignation towards others. Others who are failures. And who are wrecking everything for the rest of us. Those mess-ups who are wrecking our country, who are wrecking our, our state or our church or our families. If they had it together like I do, they don't, but if they did, then things would be okay. I'm okay. My head's held high. But they, they deserve some sort of rebuke, and I'm going to give it to them. We might call it righteous indignation, but the judgmentalism reviews its other. There isn't anything like the Sermon on the Mount. Love your enemy. Seek to do good to them and help them. Bless those who persecute you. Instead, there's criticism and judgmentalism. And it reveals that we think, we, we are looking at how we, how we do, how God views us, and therefore how one should be viewed. You're doing poorly, you should be viewed lowly. I am doing okay. I should be viewed highly. Maybe it comes out in indignation. Maybe that's a symptom in you. Maybe you find yourself saying something like this. What gives? God, what gives? You're in some frustrating, trying, stretching situation in which it seems like God's not coming through, and your response to that is, what gives? God, what, what's up? Because, maybe ask yourself, because how I'm thinking is I have done and I should get, but I'm not getting. What gives? I've had this conversation a number of times, and, and often it's prefaced with the, I know God doesn't owe me anything, but what gives? Revealing God owes me something. Do you find yourself in situations where God's not coming through like, like you think he should, and you're wondering, he should be. He should be. Maybe you think he should be because you think how I'm doing determines how God views me, and I'm doing well. I'm doing good. He should be viewing me positively, and he should be blessing me. Why? What gives? Why not? Obviously, none of us are all of this always. None of us are all of this always. We could explore more of this and all kinds of interrelated problems, but the point is, the point is one of helping us to set us free from this mistaken way of thinking. I'm not in any way whatsoever trying to skewer you or, or bring some sort of conviction or condemnation on you. I'm trying to, in ways that, that occurred to me, to pull out what might be symptoms in your life to reveal. Indeed, I, I know the gospel. I know the gospel. But down at the grassroots, down here where, where the living actually happens, very consistently, in certain situations, at certain times, I walk through life as if God's opinion of me is tied to how I do. That is terrible. Terrible for you. It's terrible for you because if we look at what we just considered, it is a recipe for burden. And it is a recipe for pride. Depending on how well you think you're doing. 
It's going to bring you one of those two troubles. And to apply verse 18 to the Christian here, not in an eternal sense, but in a temporal day-by-day sense, you think along this path of performance, you think that you have intimacy with God, and it growingly so, but you don't. And it's actually what you think you have is taken away. Because actually distance with God increases. The more and the more and the more you attempt to stand on your own merit and your own efforts, you're actually walking away from God into self. It's tragic. It is not a growing intimacy with God, but a growing distancing from God. This mistaken way of thinking. And all of us struggle with it. Christians, we struggle with it. And graciously... God has acted in Christ to expose this and to set us free from it. To expose this and to set us free from it. And he's done that by sending Christ, which brings us to the second point. Which is much shorter. Here's the second observation. Jesus has been sent by God. Jesus has been sent to announce real good news. Jesus has been sent to announce real good news. Hear it always. Hear it always. We looked at verse 16 last week, and we noted, if you were here, this is familiar to you, but if you weren't, we noted that this is a a common phrase. Verse 16 is a common picture there that's used in different contexts to mean different things. It's always important to look in the particular context where you are to figure out what does it mean right here. And we observe that there are three steps in the logic flow here. The first step has the lamplighter lighting a lamp and putting it on a stand in the middle of the room. So he lights the lamp and puts it out there in the middle. The second step, end of the verse, that those who enter may see the light. So step one, lit, put in the center of the room, so that, step two, everybody will see it. Step three, verse 17, because for, here's the reason that that is, for nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest. So light shown, light seen, because for the intention is that all the hidden things will be revealed. Jesus sent preaching and teaching in town after town after town, not in a hidden place and off in a corner somewhere, but right in public like a lamp set on a stand. Jesus teaching and preaching broadly, openly, so that everyone can see it for the intention of exposing hidden things in the human heart. It's the intention. We talked about how the the Christ-focused dividing line will fall and it will expose It'll center all our attention on Christ, and it will give to to us some encouragement that that nobody gets away with anything. And will also say to us, think twice. That's his point here. Be careful how you hear. Take care then how you hear, verse 18. Think twice, because nothing hidden escapes exposure. Talked about that last week. This should be all familiar to you. And that's where we pick up then and move on to expand it this week. The intention of God in sending Christ is to expose hidden things. Preach and expose hidden things. Like, for instance, the reality of these two paths. That one works and one doesn't. One's a mistake. He wants to expose that path. This path of works righteousness to show it as a failed path. So how does he do that? Well, as part of that, Christ proclaims the law of God accurately. This path and this way of thinking along this path that many people walk it's a way of thinking that here's the law, here's what God requires, and, and as I do that, God views me well and accepts me. Well, Christ preaches that and says otherwise. 
Simon sits at the party, looks at the prostitute who's a mess and says, so not like her. And Jesus, in preaching the law to people like that, says, remember this, this is Matthew's account of the Sermon on the Mount, where he says, you've heard it said, thou shalt not commit adultery. Well, I tell you, have you ever lusted after a woman in your heart? Then you've committed adultery. And I tell you, you've heard it said, don't murder. And I tell you, have you ever been viciously angry with somebody and insulted them in your heart? Then I tell you, you're guilty of murder. We, so to speak, take up the blueprints of the law and build a sandcastle and say, look, it matches. And Jesus rolls in the wave and washes it all away. He says, you are called to love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength and all of your mind. To love your neighbor and even your enemy as yourself. And no one does it. We set up the castle of works righteousness and evaluate ourselves against it and he washes the whole thing away and says there is no such works righteousness. There isn't anyone. There is no one good. No, not one. So he preaches the law in a way that clarifies what the law is actually saying and strips us in front of it and leaves us exposed. No, not one. And then he says, actually, there is one. There is one who by his works was righteous. There is one son dearly loved to the Father who did everything that the Father commanded. Jesus preaches the law and exposes and then preaches grace and says, there is one who by his own works was united and intimate with God, welcomed in as not just a brother or a mother, but as a son, the dearly beloved son, who had everything one could require, and increasingly so. And those of us who sit at the, at the washed-away sandcastle and say, oh, I spent my life doing that, and it was a failure. What else hope? What hope is there? We look to this Jesus, and we find here a a great and remarkable and incredible reality that this one, this beloved son, who was intimate, was then set aside, alienated, and forsaken. I am to be alienated. You are to be alienated. But instead, he was. This coming off the lips of Jesus, after, after he clarified, but no such thing as works righteousness. You're not righteous in your own works. You're alienated from God. And in fact, I, the righteous one, I will be alienated in your place that you might be brought near. This is the gospel as Jesus proclaims it. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. You take my yoke upon you. I take your sin upon me. And I give you rest. This is how one becomes acceptable to God. And Jesus makes that known. Jesus was sent in order to make that known, to expose the the false hope in works righteousness and to expose it now. It will indeed be exposed at the end when we all stand before the judgment. This is for now. This is Jesus speaking now. Take care how you hear now. I want to expose this path as empty, and I want to shine light on me as sufficient and certain. I make you acceptable to God. So if you're you're one of the people that I was only briefly talking to, a non-Christian and you know it, or a person who maybe you're discovering that you're not a Christian and you've been in church for your whole life, come to Jesus and trust him. He alone pays for your sin i got to say that and call you to repent and believe and be saved and set free. But as I said, I'm really talking to all of us. And I want to say, do you see what he's trying to expose as this Jesus preaches to you? You can't, never, never can make yourself acceptable in my sight by what you do. You cannot, not just didn't, can't. But glory, I did. 
I did it for you. And it is done. It is done. Set free once and again and again and again. Every day you must hear this and take it in and, oh, believe it. Would you see the intimate one alienated for you? Done. You are acceptable regardless of what you do. You can't say that. That's going to set people free to sin. No, it won't. No, it won't. That's the argument of Paul in Romans. No, it won't if you get it. If you are one that he has gained for himself, that he has brought near to himself, if, you, if that is you and you get that, the declaration that you are his, set free, accepted regardless of what you do, will not liberate you to sin. It will liberate you to obedience from joy because you are accepted, not to become accepted. So Christian, Christian, we examine all those symptoms. We think them through, and maybe the other ones that I didn't think of. We think them through, and we see, oh, I do, I do, I do walk in this way of believing that how I'm doing, how I'm doing determines how you view me. We see that. We turn away from it. We, to use these paths, we leave that path and step over onto the other path of what Jesus is saying. And you say, accepted accepted Christian accepted that, that should move you that should move you if you, have, if you have felt the burden if you have felt the hopelessness if you have felt the guilt if you have sensed in yourself the other loathing and the condemnation and the pride if you have felt that to be set free I am accepted You sit down in front of the computer screen and you click on the pornography. An hour later, you turn it off and you feel like trash. Accepted. What? You can't say that. You gotta like, you gotta beat that guy. No, you don't. No, you don't. You gotta say to that guy, to you, accepted. Beloved, that too was on the cross. That too was seen. If you get that, what a wash over you is glorious, shocking. <sighs> and you will get the gospel while still an enemy of his, he died for you to cleanse you of all unrighteousness, that hour included. And seeing that God, that grace, that glorious removal of, deliver, of, of deserved condemnation, seeing that is what the Spirit uses to change us on the inside to show us the breadth and the depth and the height and the love of this God who should condemn, but doesn't. That is a good and glorious and loving God. And the Spirit will use that in you to move you to follow His decrees as an accepted one, not to become accepted. God has provided a good, a real, and a good message in Jesus that we must hear to be set free once and again and again and again and again and again and again. And again. The gospel is good news and the gospel is real. You are accepted. You are brought in, made new. May the Spirit of God press that home on you. May he alert you to, will he help you notice, this is maybe how you can walk through life, will he help you to notice the symptoms? Will he, will he help you to catch up where you're, you're tempted to smile with the phony smile and to realize, I think that I need to present in a certain way? Will he catch you right there and remind you you're accepted? I didn't love you more yesterday before you did that. I won't love you tomorrow if you don't. I won't love you better tomorrow if you don't. 
where we catch you in that symptom and remind you of the gospel and set you free from this mistaken way of thinking and its resulting shame or burden or pride. God is a God of grace in Christ. He is a God for you to set you free. Let me pray. Father, would you, to those who are your people here right now, will you, I want to say shout, but maybe you need to whisper, will you press into them the reality of the gospel of grace, the reality of Jesus and who he is and what he did for us, your people, will you press that into us and grip us with it? And set us free by it. And perhaps for some here who will hear this who are not your people, will you call them in for the first time? Will you show them the only path that leads to liberation? The only path that leads to acceptance by you, forgiveness, intimacy with you, the one for whom they were made. Speak, Father, make the truth clear, build your people, and honor your name. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.